This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. You have to wonder sometimes what some alien race might think of us here in the United States if the only information they had was what they could glean from watching TV. If all they had were repeats of friends, they might think we were urbane, witty, and neurotic. If they had TV news, they might think we were completely plagued with fires, murders, and dramatic weather events. But what if they just had football? What would they make of us then? With Super Bowl 43, that's X-L-I-I-I, the Steelers versus the Cardinals, coming up tomorrow, the question of what the game means to us and what it says about us seems like a very good one to ask. Why do we so love a game that apparently involves trying to kill the opposing team's players? Why is the Super Bowl one of the biggest media events of the year? And again, what does this all say about us? Here this morning to talk about Americans and football is anthropologist Hugo Benavides. Benavides is an associate professor at Fordham, and he's working on a book about football in America post-September 11th. I managed to pull him away from the preparation of fried snacks and the purchase of beer for a conversation about football, race, masculinity, and war. Hugo Benavides, welcome. Thank you. So when we watch the Super Bowl tomorrow, what are we really watching? I think there's several levels of it. I mean, at some point, uh, we're engaging with just a, a beautiful sport and incredible amount of, you know, uh, athletics and art. But at a much deeper level, I think we are also sort of watching ourselves and, and watching the things that, that make us who we are and particularly make us feel or think or see ourselves as Americans. And I think that that's really what comes out in the sport and in very, you know, different ways. You say that football and the way that we engage with it as Americans is the game that most reflects the American character in our history and our national conflicts since September 11th, even more than before. What does that mean? It's interesting because everybody sort of considers baseball the national pastime. And, and I think that's true in many regards. But it really, I think, is football the, the one that people would say sort of expresses our national identity. And I think those are two different things. And, and I think that it has to do with a sense of... Uh, non-hidden aggression and sort of just extreme uh, explicit competitiveness that, that comes out in football, which everybody sort of celebrates and cherishes. And there's two sides to that. One that I think it's always been a part of the sport since its very inception uh, over a century ago. But I think since September 11th, a lot of those elements got sort of reinforced or reemphasized in our national culture. And now that happened in football as well. And, and sort of in that sense, it it got reemphasized in football, but then through football, we got to sort of reemphasize it in the larger national culture as well. I feel like when people watch football, they often think like, this is the best of us. <laughs> what what qualities are they thinking of? I think I think one of the biggest elements, and, and I think it's the one that jumps um, the, to us the most, is sort of physical might and physical strength, and and I think that's a really important element. In some ways, I don't emphasize it too much, not because it's not there, but but again, it's because it's kind of obvious, and a lot of people have really talked about it and written about it. But I, I think it has to do very much with this sense of superiority and physical superiority and physical aggression, and once again that. The more complex our lives are in terms of social terms and sort of, you know, international conflicts, racial realities, gender, you know, interactions, we can still sort of go out there and say, well, if I can just beat you down and punch you down, that's ultimately what matters. And so I, I do think that that's really one sort of at the basic, basic level of what football builds upon. 
Okay, so there's football and there is media about football, which is really a whole world unto itself with movies, sports coverage, a whole set of legends around it. Tell me about the narrative that is at the center of most football coverage. If you look at particularly football films, it's amazing how melodramatic they are. And, you know, I, I sort of was going out there and trying to see, you know, how many of them were not melodramatic. And then I realized that it did the number didn't matter anymore, just that the, the vast majority were, were melodramatic, I think, emphasized the point that there is something very, very um, specific about the narrative of football and the way that it's driven home. And, and I think that has very much to do with this idea of sort of the fallen hero. Right, that we have this national quest to succeed as an individual against incredible odds. And I really think that in all football stories, even the ones that try not to be, there's still that same myth about conquering something, which ends up being conquering ourselves, really. So what's the story that we're going to be hearing about the Steelers and the Cardinals specifically? There'll be multiple narratives, but uh, one of them, at least, or the main one, might be the sort of David and Goliath, again, sort of this story, in the sense that the Steelers are very much a traditionally uh, successful football team, has won several Super Bowls, as opposed to the Cardinals, which uh, I think they haven't either been to a final or they haven't won a championship in 60 years. So once again, you see just the fact that of them getting to the Super Bowl, to the football championship final, is an amazing accomplishment, right? So there again is this underdog sort of narrative coming into the, the game. Now, in this book that you're working on, you talk about a few major issues that have to do with U.S. football, like race and masculinity and war. I want to ask you about all of these, but let me start with race. Tell me first off about the structure of teams and of leadership in the NFL and how that breaks down in terms of race. Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you sort of look at teams in the 60s before um, African-Americans were integrated into college and uh, football leagues. And you're sort of shocked at the progress we have made, if you can talk about it that way, right? That there's a greater presence of African-Americans now and over one-third of the um, of the football players are, court, uh, are actually African-Americans. But the problem is no longer in terms of just sheer numbers, but actually, as you were sort of pointing out, in the specific positions. I mean, one of them that was very complicated was quarterbacks. And for the longest times, you have very, very few to no um, African-American or black quarterbacks. And that has changed. And and that's also another interesting story because it has changed starting at the college level where you have very significant college teams with very successful African-American quarterbacks. And then that has sort of progressed and also uh, part of the NFL. The interesting thing about that is that now that you have black or African-American quarterbacks, the position has changed. And so now it's sort of in some ways expected that they'll be much more physical in the way that they play the position. And so that has redefined the position. So it sort of becomes interesting how once it's opened to a, a new group, those racial ideologies come to define the positions and the way that it is played. The problem right now in the NFL in terms of minority representation has to do more with team ownerships and managements, and particularly coaches. Uh, A couple of years ago, there was actually a Super Bowl where the two uh, coaches were African-Americans, but there were only uh, the two out of the three or four black uh, coaches in the NFL. So it was kind of interesting that that occurred. How many coaches are there in the NFL? Uh, Well, there's 32 teams. So I think this last season you had five African-American coaches. Not so sure. But 
uh, I think that's actually gone down because a couple of them, including Herm Edwards, just got fired last week. So, so again, and what's interesting is that while the country's sort of talking about going ridding or getting rid of affirmative action um, policies, the NFL has actually really, really pushed this in terms of at least interviewing minority uh, candidates for the coaching positions. This is kind of radical, but I've seen the word, uh, the phrase plantation system applied to football. Yes, and it's actually mainly used by uh, ex-African-American or black NFL players. And it's kind of an interesting sort of um, idea because in the one way you could say, you know, they're making so much money, at least some of them are, and they're in the limelight and they have everything that we sort of as Americans think we would want or would make us happy. And yet what they're really talking about is that at the end of the day, they don't actually own themselves. At the the end of the day, really, the the teams are like the company store. And they're given all of these things as long as they're performing the way that the company wants them to perform or behaving in a particular way. And once that's over, there's really nothing about them for them. And I guess even more importantly, that in in some ways that they don't feel taken in as a human being, right? That they just become this sort of athletic object, You talk about two different players who you say tell us some really interesting things about football and race and also class, Jeremy Shockey and Ricky Williams. Tell me their stories. In some ways, they're very, very similar stories in the sense that both Jeremy Shockey and Ricky Williams come from really hard uh, backgrounds. Uh, I think they both come from divided households. Jeremy's father was never around. Um, Ricky Williams went from one household to another and to foster parents. And and yet the way that they sort of dealt with this was similar in the sense that they used a lot of that sort of resentment or difficult childhood as, as aggression to put it in the football field and to use it against their opponents. But in many ways... It also is different the way the story got told in the sense that Jeremy Shockey uh, is really sort of a, a figure of sort of enormous amount of patriotism. And, you know, he has all these tattoos with um, the flag and eagles, and it's a very patriotic symbol. And in many ways, he's he's an enormous bad boy, and, and, and there's a lot of controversy about what he, he does or has done. But it's still sort of a very much... Uh, retelling of a a white American hero. And in another sense, Ricky Williams is very different, and he's also transgressed in different ways. And one of the things that he did was retire early uh, or retire when he was not supposed to, according to his contract. And that created an enormous controversy. And he was publicly chastised because in some sense he had not sort of done the right thing as a man and as an American man and stood by his team. And now he's playing again. And it's more for financial reasons, although, again, it's very complicated. But so what I was trying to do in the book or I'm trying to do in the book is sort of look at that in more detail and sort of bring out the different narratives or explanations where race and class plays enormous elements as well as already gender. They're really different stories, the uh, Jeremy Shockey and Ricky Williams stories. On the one hand, you have Jeremy Shockey, who sort of his big problem is that he goes around sort of saying inappropriate things here and there. Ricky Williams, on the other hand, his big transgression was to, as you say, retire early to was it complete his studies in Zen Buddhism? What was it? It was one of the things he was doing. He was I mean, he was really sort of 
I, I don't want to say hippy dippy, but a lot less mainstream spiritually than a lot of football players are seen to be. And that was seen as just being horrendous. And his early retirement was viewed as abandoning his team vulnerable, as if they were a unit at war who had been left there with a big gaping wound. Exactly. And that's what's interesting to me. I mean, um, I think if you sort of present them in that way, they're completely different and contrasting. But I wonder how much um, Ray's goes into explaining or seeing those differences, right? Because ultimately, they're, they're both transgressions. And it's interesting how these transgressions get seen or understood and what they actually become. I mean, with, with Shockey, it's kind of interesting the things that he apologizes for and the things that he doesn't apologize for. And, and I think that you can see that in Shockey, that, you know, in the sense he, like everybody else, is, you know, a troubled human being who's trying to make sense of his life and try to make a sense of his surroundings. But I, I think he, like Ricky Williams, are given different cues and then they sort of take it at face value and then they're asked to either apologize for it or sort of explain themselves, right? And I think one of the elements that strikes me about Ricky Williams' story is I, I was actually impressed by the fact that he believed that he could retire because as somebody who's been playing football his whole life, including in college and then came back to it, I think it was pretty, I mean, the writing was on the wall. It was pretty clear that he was tied to this endeavor. And yet he strongly wanted to believe the opposite. And, and I think in some ways that's the transgression. I mean, in some ways that's, I think, the element, and I don't use this lightly, of somehow behaving uppity. And the language that he used was pretty telling of how he felt about it when he said for the first time in his life he was free. Absolutely. And, and I think that's where it ties. I mean, again, one of the I mean, then you can sort of see sort of these elements of philosophy or spirituality. Also, what's interesting is Williams was always a very good uh, student in college. And, and, and again, it's told as if this is an exception, but there are tons of football players that actually do very well in college. So, again, that creates this sort of myth that a football player is not smart or should not care about his academics. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. That was, of course, George Carlin doing his famous bit about the differences among sports. My guest this morning on the show is Fordham anthropologist Hugo Benavides, and we're talking football. Let's get back to that conversation. You talk about the relationship between professional football and the military, and you actually use another example from pro football to talk about this, which is uh, Pat Tillman. Tell me about him. Yeah, Pat Tillman, again, is a, is a very interesting uh, human being and story in the sense that he was an NFL player, I think, with the Arizona Cardinals. And he decided to enlist and to for the war, and he got uh, sent to Afghanistan. So in one sense, it was a very heroic story, but it, it wasn't that big or nationally publicized. What became news is that he actually was killed while in Afghanistan. It's, you know, immediately seen as, you know, very heroic that he must have died fighting. Well, that changes, you know, instantly because we find out that it's by friendly fire, that it was actually people in his own company that shot at him by mistake. Uh, his mother 
just published a book. Uh, it's called, I think the book, Boots on the Ground, and where she talks about, the, you know, his life and this whole conflict because it's still pending. The probes are still pending that it seems like there's a possibility that it was in friendly fire, that there was a real sort of antagonism in the um, group against each other and against Tillman, and that it may have not been an accident. And, and, and so the sheer possibility of that is very problematic, even if it wouldn't be true. But one of the things that his mother has been very adamant about is why wasn't this made clearer faster or sooner? That it, you know, when she got the news or when the whole family got the news, it was very much about trying to make him a hero. And that's that, that we don't need more explanations. And she's has. And again, there's, you know, a whole sort of series of articles in The Times and The Washington Post about her really trying to get attention from the U.S. Army and from all these different officers. And her saying, you know, here's Pat Tillman, who's now a national hero, who's a very famous person. And look, the difficulty that I have getting information about the death of my son. Can you even imagine what it would be for other common folks? So talking about war and football, we hear a lot the um, the statement that football is the game that is most like war. But we can't just say that football is like war since September 11th, because war and football since then have been really explicitly linked by the broadcasting of greetings from foreign servicemen during the games. There's several ways to think about this. Well, one one of the things that made me want to write this book or, or do this research on football was the fact that I, I've been watching football most of my life. And after September 11, the intervention of sort of military personnel, both male and female, um, got bigger. And I was going to say from abroad, but it's not always from abroad. It's just from military bases all over the country as well. And that just got bigger and bigger. And you also got more sort of patriarchal elements like the flag and, you know, jets and eagles and all of these things. And not only for playoff games, but even for, you know, regular season games. And so that made me really start to wonder about this identification of football as war, particularly when we were at war. I mean, that that I, I agree with you that, you know, football is not war. And that's one of the things if you read a lot of sort of Pat Tilbin's letters to um, his family members and friends that he's sort of saying, you know what, I grew up thinking that I knew what war was and I had no idea, right? That there, there was a gaining of consciousness that he had as he was uh, in those years in Afghanistan, fighting in Afghanistan. And I, and I think that that is something that's kind of lost in the representation that we have of football, or the way that it's represented by the media, that, you know, football is not war, but it, it seems like it would be. And then when you have military images in the middle of the game, or you actually have, you know, pictures or videos of the uh, military personnel watching football games during Thanksgiving, it's almost like you, like we were in the same place and, and we're not. And I, and I think that to me is one of those interesting elements of how, not necessarily that we have to make the separation, but how interesting that we don't see the separation. So what do you think that indicates that we don't necessarily see that as being weird, that there's all these military elements in football? Well, that's why... I think one of the elements that hopefully will come out of the study, and, and it's try to answer those broader questions, it, what is it that we really are seeing in football and what is it that we really want to see? And I think in many ways it touches on very, very sort of uh, tense patriotic cores of who we are. And so it, I think it gets very... Um, I want to say dangerous, but more than dangerous, I think it gets very anxious to talk about these things because 
one of them is that I don't think we very much want to admit that we're at war. <laughs> and, and I think that's precisely the problem. It's almost like we want to be at, at war, but we don't want to know about it. We want to be at war, but we don't want to pay the price for it. And it really is for those people that that have their children or their family members fighting. It's really for those people, you know, that, that, that are seeing the, you know, effects on their lives that they really sort of start saying, hold it, this is not being an adequate representation. And I guess I've been thinking very much of, of the fact that during the last eight years, we haven't really been able to see the coffins of soldiers coming back to our country. And and I and I think that's a very good example of us, you know, saying, oh, that, that will impact us negatively. And it might be true, but it also is a denial of the reality and the pain that people are actually feeling and going through. So football, I think, becomes a very interesting uh, mechanism where you actually are talking about a war, seeing warring elements, but seeing them in such a positive light that I think it only gives part of the picture. And and that's where I think it's actually a not necessarily a misrepresentation, but a, but I think it it does not does it does not do justice to football and to football players because I think they are giving their all and they're giving an enormous amount of uh, physical effort, and so it's being used to sort of hide something as opposed to sort of being celebrated. I think for the really difficult task that it is to be a football player. Made of steel, made of steel, the super stealers, the Pittsburgh real. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flair. We're from the town with the Super Bowl team. This time we inner stealers. We prove to the world that we have the best team. Congratulations, Steelers. Bradshaw and Rocky. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, things to do in the city when the weather outside is frightful. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We're talking on Fordham Conversations this morning with anthropologist Hugo Benavides. Benavides is working on a book about football in America post-September 11th, and we are chatting about that in advance of the big game tomorrow. Let's hear the rest of that conversation. Okay, so let's let's talk about football and manliness. One of your big arguments is that football, not not just the game, but the whole thing surrounding it, tells a story about what it means to be a man in America. Tell me what that story is. Well, there's there's a very interesting book. I think one of the most interesting or original ideas, and the title itself says that it's called uh, "The Stronger Women Get, the More Men Love Football." And and uh, Burton Nelson's argument is that. That as we have from the 60s on, minority groups, particularly women, getting, gaining more and more social power, that men have been more and more intimidated by sort of this loss of sort of a, a public image of masculinity or manhood. So that they've actually had to sort of go into smaller circles to sort of reclaim this uh, very patriarchal form of exclusive masculinity. And so what's interesting is that it is true that in the last 20 to 30 years, the NFL has become much more successful and has become in some sense an, an emblem of, of masculinity. So I, I, I would agree with her argument, and I think that there is something very, very solid about the way we have been thinking or constructing or representing football in those last 30 years that has very much to do as a backlash against a lot of these uh, in claims of civil rights or the women's movement. 
The other thing that's kind of interesting about football is it also provides a place for people to be vulnerable, for men to cry and hug and, you know, feel really like, oh, I really want this. Well, and that's why I say I think it's always sort of a misrepresentation to just see half of the picture. And in the one sense, you have these sort of big, burly men being very, very sort of, you know, physical and and then having a toll on each other. I mean, it's a very dangerous game. People get hurt. People die. And also on, in their lives. I mean, on average, they will live less than we do and will actually have enormous impacts on the rest of their life, physical impacts on the rest of the disabilities on their lives. But at the same time, I was struck as I was watching football closer and closer. It's of how much players relate to each other. And what's interesting is not only in their own team, like if somebody gets hurt on the field and they stop the game, sort of everybody quiets down. It doesn't matter where you are. Uh, players from both teams kneel down. I mean, so all of a sudden it becomes this enormous moment of recognition of one's humanity. And that's very moving. And also you help each other up. And again, it's very striking when you help opponents out uh, up from the ground. And, and again, I think, and, and, and there's a lot of touching and hugging and, and things again that I think that we're not allowed to do as American or men in America and that it's only in this context of war where you would allow this sort of very vulnerable transgressions, which are deemed as being too feminine. Why is America so invested in football and why aren't other countries? I'm not sure. Uh, one of the main differences is that we are the only country that actually you know, has football as one of its main national sports. It's played in other places like Europe, through the NFL, um, Japan, Mexico, and even Argentina, and there are other countries. But, it, it again, it doesn't really have the force that it has for the United States. And, of course, we don't play soccer in the same way that the rest of the world plays soccer, right? So, I, I, again, I, I would not agree that it has to do something with just the fact that football is much more violent. I mean, I think you could actually make an argument that, you know, rugby is is a pretty violent game. And so that's also played in other places. So I'm not sure why it got so separated from the rest of the world starting uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But it has been used, that, that's very clear, for a long time as a, as a marker of differentiation and in the way that baseball or hockey were not possible or capable. And I, and I think that has been emphasized. I wouldn't think that that's the, the cause or the main reason, but it definitely has been used to sort of separate that this is something we do, a particular taste that nobody really understands. And I think from what I've sort of heard or just traveled around the world, I think people sort of, you know, are very happy to sort of critique football as saying, oh, it's so violently American. And again, I, I don't think that tells the whole story. I have heard many times people who were not American, um, and indeed who were and who dis- disliked football, sort of attributing certain qualities to football that other sports are not supposed to have, like, as as you say, violence. But then people who are football fans will say, oh, but soccer so, you know, it's such a wussy sport. <laughs> I don't think that's as popular as it used to be, but it's something people did say. What things do people who don't like football outside of the country think about it? Well, I, I think that's one of them. And I think it has to do very much with this idea that it's it's very violent, right? I mean, what's interesting is that in games like rugby and soccer, you're really not trying to hurt the other 
person, the other individual. I mean, but you hurt them. I mean, it becomes a secondary and it becomes pretty close. And I think if you follow soccer also in the last decades, what you've actually seen is a argument to make actually soccer more of a men's game. So you actually have more injuries now and more serious injuries than you've ever had. And again, I think that's a question of interpretation or taste depending on the leagues and the referees. But you can definitely see, I think, uh, higher incidence of injuries in soccer now than ever before and more serious injuries. But I think the fact that in American football, the target is actually to disable the opponent is what makes the difference. And I think that's what most foreigners are sort of not, and I guess I'm generalizing, but most foreigners would sort of not be attracted to. They're more interested in sort of pursuing the ball or or, or getting uh, down the field, but not necessarily going out to hurt the opponent as your objective. Well, one more question. Who are you rooting for on Sunday? Oh, (laughs) that's why I wrote this book, Underdogs Go Cardinals. (laughs) Well, Hugo Benavides is an associate professor of anthropology at Fordham. Hugo, thanks so much and have fun on Sunday. I appreciate that. Thank you. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. If you'd like to hear the show again or if you missed part of it, you can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at wfuv.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful weekend. Little ditty about Jack and Diane, two American kids growing up in the heartland. Jack is going to be a football star. Diane's debutante backseat of Jackie's car. Sucking on chili dog outside taste freeze. Diane sitting on Jackie's lap, got his hands between her knees. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.